The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, photographer David Kennelly, talks to a career spanning more than 40 years, covering eight wars and as many U.S. presidents. David Kennelly, at 25, the Roseburg, Oregon native, won the 1972 Pulitzer Prize for his photos of the Vietnam War, and two years later was appointed President Gerald R. Ford's personal photographer. He has been presented with numerous other honours, among them the Overseas Press Club's Olivier Rabot Award for Best Photographic Reporting from Abroad, for his coverage of Reagan and Gorbachev's historic first summit meeting in Geneva. He was named one of the most 100 most important people in photography by the American Photo Magazine. Kennelly has been shooting on the front lines of history for more than 40 years. He has photographed eight wars as many U.S. presidents and has traveled extensively during a long career. David, welcome. How are you? It's such a privilege to have you on the program, David. I know that you are terribly busy with so many events occurring right now. Um... Perhaps it might be a good idea just to inform our listeners uh, what you're up to these days. Well, I'm, uh, I'm currently down in Austin, Texas, for a, uh, uh, two events. One, I'm talking to the local MPPA, uh, National Press Driver Association chapter at the University of Texas. And then I'm giving a lecture, uh, a panel, really, with three other former White House photographers at the LBJ Library. Bob McNeely, who was uh, Bill Clinton's photographer, Eric Draper, who was George W. Bush's photographer, and David Valdez, who was the senior Bush's photographer. And we're going to have a nice, lively little conversation. Um, I've got a the, the big thing is in, I live in California, in Santa Monica, and I've got an opening at a gallery there called the Frank Pictures Gallery, which will be opening, uh, actually the show opens on the 20th of January, but it's, um, uh, uh, we've got a big party on the 31st, and that'll be up for, uh, I guess, two and a half months, a lot of personal work, vintage photographs and, and such. It seems like your life is extremely busy. If I may, I would like to return back to the early years, uh, prior to uh, you receiving the Pulitzer Award. How was it that you decided to move into photography as your career? Well, I'm from a little town in, in Oregon, a place called Roseburg, and ever since I was a kid, I was interested in photography, and I was... Um, I had a little brownie Hawkeye, I guess it was. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I still don't have that camera, but I just had this compelling desire to shoot pictures. I worked on the high school newspaper, and when I was a junior, I moved up north to a place right outside of Portland, a uh, 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 town called West Lynn, and went to high school there where I ended up graduating, and that's where I really took off, I think, uh, I graduated from high school in 1965, and at that point, I was really into shooting big time. And uh, and I I got a job on the uh, the Oregon Journal, which no longer exists, but it was the biggest afternoon paper in in Oregon. So I started taking pictures for them. And one of the early assignments I had was uh, photographing Robert Kennedy, who'd come to town campaigning for. Uh, some local congressman, and there was an off-year election, and he uh, really impressed me. In fact, one of my favorite pictures to this day was a photograph I took that night, 
and I ran into Bill Epridge of Life Magazine and Steve Shapiro, who was the shooter for a lot of big publications, who were traveling with Kennedy. And I remember being caught up in the excitement of this this really amazing politician and had followed the motorcade out to the airport and I, I, I watched the everybody get on the plane and the door closed and a taxi down the runway. It was kind of like that final scene in um, Casablanca. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought I want to be on that airplane. Those guys left. You know, I felt like I'd been left off at the you know, the in the middle of a intersection somewhere and I, I could truly peg my interest in political photography to that moment. Yes, I was about to take a quotation from Howard uh, Feynman, um, actually from your website, where he uh, says Kennedy modestly refers to himself as a political photographer. That that's it's quite a new genre, isn't it? I mean, do, do well, I don't know. I mean, it's like uh, uh, as a former wire service guy. I mean, really, I'm happy with the title photographer. I don't. I get sucked into using the term photojournalist uh, just because it's what people say, you know. But I, I, I don't really know what that means. I, I'm a photographer, and I think photographers are. I mean, if you're a dentist, you're a dentist, right? You're not a political dentist. <laughs> so, but I, I, I mean, I don't look at it like dentistry, but uh, it can be painful sometimes. But I, I don't. Uh, I am someone who goes out and takes pictures. That's what I do. And uh, it happens. Uh, a good part of that stuff's political or it's motivated from politics, like covering wars and all that. I like being where the action is. Um, this is a world in which uh, the political people have such a strong influence that I, I guess being at the center and photographing that center of power is what's always interested me. Can we chart that those years, uh, those years in the the late sixties, early seventies, those years that we saw that terrible conflict in Vietnam? Uh, what were those uh, years to do for your career? How were you seeing your style um, expand? Where where was your photography going at that time? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've never been able. To, it's not like Richard Avedon who you know, had a style that consisted of plain white backgrounds, essentially. But uh, I'm not, I don't know what my style is. There have been people who said they could tell that I took a photograph. Uh, I am not one of those people, <laughs> other than the fact I knew I happened to take something. But um, uh, the evolution of my career, in fact, somebody the other day just asked me about uh you know, how have I grown in the business and all that? And I, that's a kind of a tough question because I you, I still approach it uh, in a way that I, I want to get to the center of a story. I want to get be up close and personal with the subjects. Um, you know, that's kind of what I've been doing. And when I, when it came to Vietnam, I'd already gone to Washington, D.C. I was I had my first ride on Air Force One when I was 23 years old as a UPI uh, uh, photographer, part of the traveling press pool with the president. Um, I had gotten to a point where a lot of other photographers, that was, uh, that was their idea of where they wanted to be. And I remember very distinctly uh, watching the, the photographs come in from Vietnam, and it's getting late in the game uh, for me. And, and, uh, uh, and I, I truly felt I had to go to Vietnam. And if I didn't go and cover the biggest story of my generation, that I was going to forever be kicking myself in the ass. And so I, I didn't. I, I managed to do it. I convinced UPI to send me. And uh, uh, you remember that movie, Mr. Roberts, where uh, Henry Fonda's on the uh, on on the supply ship, watching the battles, but watching the, the the destroyers sail into battle, and he's in some backwater, and that's how I felt that I um, I managed to get over there, and I spent almost two and a half years uh, covering the war. Were there ever any times that you came into real danger? Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, anybody who covers a war, if they don't come into real danger, they they obviously weren't covering the kind of war I was used to. But um, 
Oh, I've had several occasions. And uh, honestly, sometimes you don't even know how close you come. I mean, you hear the bullets uh, cracking around you. Uh, I, I, I had some drinks last night with friends, and I said one of the most vivid recollections I had of combat, and this guy was from India, uh, was during the India-Pakistan War in 1971, and I was with the Indian Army, and they were uh, fighting the Pakistanis on their way to uh, to Dhaka, and I was we were pinned down, and, and the machine gun uh, fire from the Pakistanis were coming. It was coming right over my head, but it was hitting all these branches, kind of like there was a shredding machine. These little pieces of leaves and branches are falling down on me, and I said that is a surrealistic moment, but it was so dangerous, and uh, and I've had people get killed that were very close to where I was, and, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, everybody's got war stories, and the more important fact was I never got wounded or obviously killed. That must be an amazing time to look back on. Um, you, you were quoted uh, about uh, photography, uh, uh, you know, can be taught, uh, except it's how to see that is more important for a photographer. Now, how do you apply that methodology when you're you're ducking bullets? How do you keep taking photographs when you're under so much pressure? Well, I think that the taking of the pictures part kind of took my mind off of what was really going on. <laughs> I mean, I was like, uh, I know other photographers felt the same way that... Um, the camera was was a psychological shield, and I knew I could get killed. I mean, it wasn't that or hurt or whatever. I mean, you could see it. I mean, in Vietnam, I think there were more than fifteen photographers got killed and uh, were killed. And um, I, as long as I was there, then I felt I had to take to keep taking pictures. I mean, there were times where I was just hunkered down and where the where so much incoming artillery and all that and really it wasn't uh didn't make for that good of pictures just made for almost getting killed but i part of the reason to be there was to take pictures i never lost sight of that and that's what i did what are you thinking uh, what are you thinking to yourself when you're taking these pictures what's your main mandate your main objective <clears throat> well the one thing i'd always uh, become very religious when i was under severe attack and say, if, oh, God, if you just get me out of here, I won't do this again. <laughs> <laughs> Until, you know, I got out of there and then till the next time. But it's hard to say. I mean, every situation was so different, but I, I, I vividly recall certain instances where, uh, and if, while we were talking, I just got uh, a, a phone call from uh, Dirk Halstead, who really is one of my mentors, and uh, um Dirk and I got in the worst firefight ever. I had just won the Pulitzer Prize. He was had been with UPI, and he was with Time when he came back to Vietnam, and he wanted to go get a little action. And I said, well, you know, like 25 miles northwest of Saigon, they've got this, the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese had overrun this village, and up there there's a lot of action. So we got in the car and drove up and were surrounded by North Vietnamese with a, a unit of uh, South Vietnamese, and, and uh, some 25 or 30 soldiers got killed within a probably a 100-meter meter, uh, radius of where we were. And Halstead says, I said a little action, not a lot of action. And all I'm thinking is, I just want to peel a surprise three days ago. I don't have to do this crap anymore, you know? I mean, um, and, and uh, now I'm going to get killed. And everybody's going to be clucking and saying, "Oh, it was so so bad because he never enjoyed, you know, winning the Pulitzer Prize." And like all those things were going through my mind at the time, which I do recall. And uh, we got out of that one, but I, I was uh, um, uh, I made some good pictures out there. I mean, people running under fire and all that. And it's just it's sort of like sports photography where the uh, the players are shooting back <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It's a crazy thing. I really admire anybody who could do that, and, and I, I do not consider myself a brave person. I, I am a professionally driven person, and I think it's a kind of a fine line there. So, two years later, you were appointed President Gerald Ford's personal photographer. Now, that must be a, a 
a big change in your life? Well, ironically, I came closer to getting killed standing next to him than I did in <laughs> Vietnam when Squeaky Fromm pulled a gun on him in Sacramento and I was right close by. And, and then in San Francisco, Sarah Jane Moore, this maniac woman, uh, took a shot at him from across the street and the bullet went and by diagram later, they showed me the Secret Service. It went between me and a Secret Service agent. And I, I was speaking of ironic, there, you know, I come back from Vietnam and I get whacked by some psycho assassin. And uh, but that didn't happen. But uh, yes, I mean, I was 27 years old, and um, uh, when I came back from Vietnam, I was uh, the summer of '73, and it was a huge news year. The the uh, uh, Israelis and the uh, Egyptians and uh, were fighting the war in the Sinai. Uh, Watergate was uh, was brewing. Uh, Spiro Agnew resigned the vice presidency, and I'd been covering him. One of the, really one of the first things when I got back, and his replacement was Gerald R. Ford. And my, the first time cover that I ever had was of Ford, who was the minority leader in the House at the time, and was also his first time cover and then time john derniak who was the brilliant picture editor of time magazine assigned me to cover ford and uh... and that led to a relationship that uh... uh led to the white house job when ford became president How, what sort of relationship do you have with the president as as his photographer uh, how well do you get to know each other well, I, he and I became really good friends. Uh, I, I think I can safely say that. I mean, that's kind of presumptuous on, on one hand, but he was such a down-to-earth guy and Midwesterner. And I come from Oregon, which is kind of like the Midwest of the West Coast <laughs> in a way, and, um, except there are probably more Democrats there than there are in Michigan. <laughs> but um, but I, uh, we just hit it off on a on a uh, on a uh, friendly level and he was respectful of what I'd done in Vietnam he was a, a veteran uh, Pacific War World War II vet uh, navy naval officer who had seen his own share of action and uh, uh, I think we related uh, on that level and I got along very well with Mrs. Ford she and I became very good friends also and 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 that was part of what made it all work i got on with the two of them and their their four kids all of whom were right around my age and um uh in this case uh been one of the reasons i'm in texas and talk it's a, a panel on presidential photography the I'll just give you a brief overview the the modern presidential uh photographer Really, uh, uh, and the first one was uh, uh, civilian, was Yochi Okamoto with LBJ, who is, I think, the godfather of presidential photography as we know it now. Uh, those duties had previously been carried out by military people, and uh, uh, and JFK was the first modern president to really understand the the value of photography and brought in a lot of exceptional. Uh, outside photographers on occasion uh, to take pictures of him and the family and and uh, Mrs. Uh, Kennedy did the same um, and then Johnson uh, uh, was not enamored with the military photos and probably wanted more of those pictures uh, that the outsiders were taking uh, like JFK although he didn't certainly look anything like him and was not that glamorous although he was a dramatic figure but he hired Okamoto, and Oki was a great photographer who just did a brilliant job. And uh, his archive is, is just a, 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 a real gem. And after him, Nixon uh, uh, appointed Ollie Atkins, who'd come from the Saturday Evening Post. He was a kind of a button-down guy, had done good work in World War II and, uh, and all of that, and, uh, but had virtually no access. Uh, LBJ gave Okamoto the run of the place and 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 wanted to be documented. Uh, Nixon didn't. And then when I came along, I had a conversation with President Ford when we were talking about the job. And I said, I didn't want the job unless I could work directly for him and have total access. 
And when I told him that, which was the night he became president, he kind of looked at me and said, you don't want Air Force One on the weekends? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, he did have a sense of humor, but I didn't want to go into that job with some the press secretary or the secretary or the chief of staff telling me what to do. And, and uh, what evolved with my professional relationship and personal relationship was really carte blanche in the Ford White House, which is why the pictures worked. Is it fair to say that that he had a pretty tough time after the Nixon period? Was that something that was reflected in your work? Well, I think one of the reasons, and I, he and I never really talked about this, by the way, but I, other people have, have thought that, for one thing, he wanted having me around. I, I, I made him laugh. I, 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 you know, didn't want anybody else's job. I wasn't there to stab people in the back in order to get my political goals achieved. Um, I spent a lot of personal time with him. At the end of the day, I would have drinks upstairs in the White House and all that. And I, I think, uh, uh, you know, what evolved there was um, uh, a relationship that showed him the way he was, which is what he wanted. I mean, he was very unpretentious. Uh, he had a total lack of vanity, um, more than most people I've ever met. Never really wanted to see the pictures. He didn't really care. <laughs> and, you know, where LBJ apparently approved every single shot. If he didn't like the way he looked, uh, you, he wouldn't even sign it for somebody, much less have it go out for publication. And um, so it's a pretty, uh, it was a great opportunity for me, and for him, too, for that matter. That really was an amazing generation, <clears throat> post-war generation. Uh, now, moving on, uh, you covered the Reagan-Gorbachev historic first summit in Geneva. My goodness me, what an, uh, a prolific uh, period that was. Um, what did you come away from with, with that event? Well, that event was for a uh, uh, time... I, I Actually, at that point, I'd already left Washington. I left D.C. in 1984 and I, to go to... Um, uh, I moved to Los Angeles to go to the American Film Institute uh, directing school. And even though I still had a time contract, I wasn't really shooting that much. The deal was I would be able to go do that, and occasionally I would shoot something. And when the when the Reagan-Gorbachev uh, summit was announced, I called one of my contacts in the White House, who, by the way, and nobody ever believes this, but it was like, he was a fairly low-ranking guy in the White House press office, and he's a guy a lot of the other photographers didn't particularly like, <clears throat> but I always knew he was very effective, and I liked him, and and uh, he was in charge of photographers, but the photographers always thought that uh, you had to go upstairs and go around him, and I always just went to him, and I said, I would like to, to, I talked to the time people, and they said, man, if you can get in there, absolutely, and I called him and made the request to do inside photos of the, the summit, and he said, well, let me get back to you, and he called me back, and he said, uh, and I said, I'm not going to go over there to Geneva uh, unless I can get in. I mean, it, honestly, there was no reason to do as an exclusive for time, and he said, well, let's see if anybody else, uh, uh, what other people in the press office have to say. He called me back and said, you're on. So I went to Geneva, and I, yeah, I, no one even knew I was there, and I got in and uh, in the press corps and, and got backstage for one of the great historical events of all time. I mean, that was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union, and I was just in there with the White House photographer taking pictures of him and Gorbachev, of Reagan and Gorbachev in front of the fire. And what I observed was an evolving, warm relationship between Gorbachev and Reagan. It was a really amazing thing to see you you seem to be uh, blessed to, to be involved in so many important world events uh, that was that was one of them and you seem to be uh, so well invested in that whole presidential makeup out of all of the presidents that you have covered which of them would strike you most uh, as being an amazing character, 
an amazing individual, or, or do you think that, that they all presented the same characteristics? But is there one that that uh, sticks out more to you? Well, you know, they all have. They were all so different. Uh, honestly, I mean, the first president I, I photographed uh, was uh, Nixon, and uh, even before he became president, uh, some during the 68 campaign. And Nixon was a, almost a Shakespearean-like character who was, uh, at least from the outside, appeared to be this kind of brooding, secretive guy. But that makes good pictures when you get two people like that uh, for the photographers. Then President Ford, who, was, uh, who with his lack of guile and unpretentious attitude, uh, sort of a everyman kind of character, was not as dramatic or interesting as... Um, say LBJ was, uh, uh, but was uh, because of of getting to know him and, and being inside, I really did see a, a, a strong side to him, a, a steady-as-she-goes kind of a character uh, who's exactly the kind of person you want running your country, uh, particularly if you've got nukes. And so um, uh, then it was Jimmy Carter, who was not very photo-friendly. Uh, uh, I didn't cover him too much, but I did during another quite significant event, which was uh, the Camp David summit with Menachem Begin and uh, Anwar Sadat. And I think that was Carter's biggest achievement, in my estimation, during his presidency. And I was in on that one because I'd been spending a lot of time in the Middle East with the Sadat and Begin and all of them. Um, but he was kind of uncomfortable with photographers. Maybe he didn't like the way he looks, or I don't know what. Uh, uh, Jody Powell was asked who was going to be the new White House photographer uh, right after Carter won the election by beating Ford. And he said, well, we're not going to have one. We don't want another David Kennerly in the White House. <laughs> so I took, I took that as a compliment, quite frankly. And then uh, to George W. Bush, who was, uh, had a really warm relationship with photographers, um, kind of a goofy character in a way. I mean, he's not a goofy guy, but he's just kind of uh, uh, out there, uh, but was a good subject. He, he, uh, uh, I didn't cover his presidency that much. I was at that point, I was back, I was in Los Angeles. And um, he's one of my favorite people. I've always really uh, liked him. And um, uh, and then Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton is a a, a, a very dramatic figure in his own right. He, he's so politically astute, and he understands photography. Like uh, one time, I was shooting in the Oval Office, and I had this kind of a short telephoto lens that I was photographing him. And this is during the Lewinsky thing, so I was looking for covers. He kind of <laughs> looks over at me and interrupts his conversation and says. That's kind of a long lens to be this close, isn't it, David? <laughs> and so, but he knew what was up. I mean, Clinton, I always felt, wouldn't let on that he knew you were what you were doing in the room, but he was always kind of surreptitiously keeping an eye on you. And so he was a good subject uh, for photographers. And then uh, George W. Bush, well, Reagan, I'm sorry, Ronald Reagan, I missed him uh, after Carter. Reagan was a guy who knew what the camera was all about. And uh, uh, I spent a lot of inside time with him during, because they liked Time Magazine, and we were, I was always making requests to do uh, special photos, and uh, Time would always run them. And uh, so he was an actor. I mean, everybody knows that. He knew how to... So when you were in the room with a character, uh, with a camera... He was in character as the president, and uh, it was interesting to watch that. And sometimes you'd see it let down a little bit, and, and like when he was waiting to be introduced uh, to give a speech, he was kind of a little down-looking, but as they kept talking about his resume and uh, getting close to introducing him, it was almost like he was being inflated. And that's an actor's trick. It's like you put your money into the performance, you know, not uh, full-time. And, and then George W. Bush who I always thought really liked photographers, but just didn't want to have them around. And uh, uh, he's a very affable guy, and I spent quite a bit of time photographing him. 
but not, I mean, not one of the most dramatic of the whole group, but somebody I personally liked and, and got along with uh, didn't spend that much time covering his presidency. You must... And then, of course, that leads us to Barack Obama, who is... And that was going to be my next question. The home run, you know, uh, uh, photo ball competition winner. (laughs) I mean, he's like... uh, uh, He's definitely in the Kennedy-Reagan-Clinton category in terms of uh, uh, bigger-than-life character... I don't even think he's really down to earth. You know, I would never say that he's one of the guys. I mean, he's spent his whole life essentially trying to get to where he is right now. Uh, he's very friendly. Uh, he uh, comes across uh, as a powerful guy in, in pictures because he is, and he knows what he's doing. I mean, he's a very deliberate guy, and I don't know him that well. Out of all those people I just mentioned, I know him less well than the others. Uh, I uh, was privileged to produce and photograph on the uh, Barack Obama official inaugural book. Uh, and so I did spend time backstage with him for two days during the inaugural period, and uh, it was impressive uh, for me. Surely, though, he must have inherited a rather uh, difficult world, David. Well, the world was just there. But here's the thing. Uh, People are saying, oh, I feel bad. I don't feel bad for anybody who wants a job that badly, works that hard to get it, and then turns around, and, and he's not doing this, by the way, and throwing his hands up and saying, oh, this is, you know, too difficult or whatever. He... He's handled it well, but he knew what he was getting into. I mean, those are different kind of people, you know, do the really want it. Ford was probably the only guy who became president who didn't really want to be president. He wanted to be Speaker of the House. And uh, I just watched Obama with uh, Ford, I mean, with uh, Clinton and, and George W. Bush on this whole Haiti thing. And uh, there's a picture I took, it's on my website. Kennerly, uh, dot com uh, that has that was taken January 9th uh, it was a year ago um, when Obama was president-elect and it was the two Bushes, Clinton and Carter in the Oval Office and it was the fifth time the five presidents have been together, in this case the president-elect but he was going to be president um, and I was in the Oval Office for that picture and the thing that struck me most about it with him was that he absolutely belonged in that group. I had There was no question in my mind that this guy was going to be, in this case, uh, the President of the United States. It wasn't like, wow, there's a mistake being made here. I don't think so. I think he's a, a strong individual. I would like to, if I may, uh, return back to the period where you... He went to Los Angeles to look at directing. It seems to me that in any photographer's career, they always aspire to getting into, get in, into film or directing or producing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it that, that um, took you on that path now? Was it because you were maybe uh, getting a bit fed up of photography or you just wanted to experience a, a different medium? Well... I didn't uh, that's a that's a good question because it it wasn't like I had to go to Vietnam kind of uh kind of a that kind of a compelling uh urge but I had been around the film business a little bit and I and I there were a lot of directors I admired and all that but I I I thought I would like to give it a try, and that's why I went to AFI, and I didn't want to wake up when I was 60 years old saying, oh, damn, I really wish I would have gone into the film business. But what I discovered after two years at the AFI film was that I was a better producer than a director. In other words, uh, and I did this, uh, I could have hired myself to direct a film, but I, as a producer of the film, but 
I chose to get somebody who knew what they were doing, <laughs> so, which definitely defines me as a good producer. I just didn't take to the directing uh, thing, and it's it's kind of interesting. And not, not that many still starters do go into it. By the way, there have been some notable exceptions. Stanley Kubrick is one good except a good example, uh, but. Um, um, like everything, directing is a profession. I mean, people who've done it, like Steven Spielberg, from the moment they woke up, from the day that they realized what they wanted to do, that's what he wanted to do. And 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 I felt the same way as a photographer. So I don't. I didn't have the burning desire to become a director. And even if I had, I may not have been any good at it. I have no idea. All I know is that I I was okay, which is not good enough. And. Um, and I did get that out of my blood. I do and still occasionally produce films, which I do like to do. Uh, but I, at, at the end of it, I'm still a, a photographer, and that's what I like doing the best. And I really admire great filmmaking. And uh, Jim Cameron being a sensational example of, of, a, of a genius filmmaker. I don't know if you've seen Avatar, but uh, it's just when you look at people like that, you think oh, I, I had no business, you know, being anywhere near that kind of a, a situation. No, I had the great privilege before Christmas of uh, spending time with Vince Pace at his uh, facility in Burbank, who, of course, was the man behind the whole technology. Sure, and, and, uh, and it's like, uh, <laughs> I mean, Cameron is like a mad scientist with an eye, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what he's been able to do is, uh, is amazing, and and I have great respect for all professions where people are really good at what they do. And it, it, one of the the uh, in the still photography area area, and, and one huge problem now that I see is the the death of editing as a profession. That uh, along with newspapers going down the tubes, photographers are more and more. Uh, uh, put in the position of being their own editors to upload from the field and there's no in-between person and, and people forget editing is a profession it's just like photography and, and in fact most good editors I work with didn't want to be photographers they lo- loved looking at pictures and they found pictures that I took that I hardly knew were there and they, they saw something else in the take and and Man, we are really suffering uh, because of that now. Going back, though, you obviously used the camera to illustrate your gift. That's how you wanted to uh, show people how you saw things and how you wanted them to see things. And then I noticed that you became writer uh, in the two-hour NBC pilot uh, shooter now, how did you get to that point? How did you go from photographer to writer? Well, I've written five books now. I mean, they've been my first one was Shooter, which has been kind of a, a, a Bible-like document for a lot of photographers who bought that book back in the early '80s. And uh, I like to write. I've written everything myself. I actually had a, an editor on Shooter who was very good, but I wrote the I wrote it. I sat down. I didn't have assistants writing it. Um, I can express myself fairly well uh, through the written word, although that's another profession, and I don't consider myself a professional writer by any means. Um, I would hate to have to get up every day and write something uh, <laughs> of any meaning. Um, uh, but that was a, a subject I knew a lot about, and I was, uh, I, with my friend Stephen Klein, uh, whom I worked with on the Oregonian, he was a cub reporter, I was a cub photographer, he went into the TV business and used to write the Lou Grant show and Bill Cosby, and, and so he and I teamed up and co-wrote that script and also produced it, and we shot it in Thailand. And uh, Helen Hunt was in it and all that. And what I provided really was the voice of the characters. Those characters were all based on people that I'd known in Vietnam and events and uh, circumstances. And 
Steve was the real writer on the project, but it was a good collaboration. It was a perfect collaboration. And the script was uh, it turned out fairly well, actually. And I was happy with that one. If you were to choose between the two mediums, between writing and the image, which would you say after all these years is the strongest? Well, there's not a question. I'm, I'm, I'm not a writer. I'm a photographer. Uh, I can write, but that's like people saying they can use a camera. You know, everybody can use a camera these days. But does that mean they're a good photographer? Uh, 99.9% of the time, no. How is your career moving forward from here, David? You've obviously had this most extraordinary uh, time behind the camera, um, time writing books and uh, producing films. What is it that you are wishing for now? <laughs> well, I'm still, you know, incredibly active. There's a, you know, <clears throat> there's a great cartoon that was in the New Yorker years ago, and it was. It was called um, What Lemmings Think, and it showed the lemmings all going toward the edge of the cliff, but they're then soaring up into the air like little birds. <laughs> and one of the problems now is I, I see myself and the profession in many ways heading for the cliff, and I would like to think I was a, of the uh, optimistic type, which I am, uh, but it's a new world. It's like trying to identify new markets. Uh, <clears throat> photography is being, um, the value of photography is being diminished by the Internet and people just thinking they can take pictures or steal pictures or whatever you want to say about it, that the great, there are no grand uh, photo publications anymore. Even Time and Newsweek in their heyday were really good photo publications. So they were primarily for writers, but... Uh, there was ample space given to photographers. Um, of course, Life, Look, Saturday Evening Post, any of these other publications are long gone. And there are not any really good markets for the kind of photography I do. So what I've uh, uh, gotten into more and more is like uh, some uh, commercial work. I've done uh, some big projects uh, teaching uh, photography is civics lessons to kids. I, I oversaw a, uh, was a large bank that funded a project called uh, the Home of the Free Student Photojournalism Project where it took. Uh, we had kids from 100 different schools around the New York City area in the Manhattan and the boroughs. Um, and in teams of five, they were given a lesson to photograph civil servants or anybody who was in public service. And uh, it was really terrific. And wasn't necessarily making them photographers, but it was teaching them how to see people around them and like who, what people were doing, which is the whole object of photography to begin with. Do you feel somewhat concerned about those coming into this profession now, whether it's in journalism, photography, film directing, film producing? No, I feel concerned with those of us who are already in it not getting work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that... I mean, I would love to be altruistic about that, but I'm not. And I think, uh, <laughs> uh, and I get asked the question, like, I would never tell somebody they shouldn't try to do what their passion is, ever. Hmm. Because there are always going to be outlets for photography. And, and, and so, but I do point out that uh, I had a guy come up to me the other day. I, I was uh, in this show called Photo LA where I had some pictures uh, exhibited by uh, the Frank Picture Gallery, which is doing my show at the end of, in January. And uh, he said, God, I'd really love to, to shoot for Time and Newsweek. I said, well, so would the Time and Newsweek photographers. You know, the, the problem is they are not giving assignments out even to the people who are on contract to them uh, to any great degree. Uh, however, you can all, they, they, I, again, I don't want to tell people not to get into the business, but it's just going to be more difficult and there are going to be new avenues. I'm not sure what they are, but, um, uh, and I'm not predicting the end of photography. I'm just saying it's all going in a different direction. I mean, all you have to do is pick up the newspapers. Look at the people who are not reading newspapers. I mean, I have small, two young boys. And they will only look at a paper just because it happens to be there in the morning when I'm looking at it. And 
they're mildly interested, but they get it all off the Internet. So we are producing a generation, a whole new generation of kids who wouldn't pick up a newspaper or magazine. They're getting it all online. That means there's a, a serious shift in the tectonic plates of, uh, of what we're doing in a, as a profession. So looking back over this amazing career, do you sometimes... Back uh, toward the good old days. The good old days, yeah. <laughs> do you sometimes sit down in quieter moments and think, wow, how did I achieve all that? How did I get access like that into the White House? How did that, how did that happen? I don't think of it that way. I do occasionally, um, <clears throat> when I'm asked a question about it mainly, uh, uh, I marvel, I wonder, I, I, I wonder how one person could have taken all those pictures of all those different events throughout the decades, <clears throat> and then the, and that person was me. And that I don't know. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, I for I should get a lifetime achievement award just for perseverance at this stage. Uh, <laughs> and I, plus, I, I haven't quit. You know, I've in the last two or three years, I've been to Afghanistan and Iraq and and all that. And not certainly in a in a long term way, but um, I am just really privileged to have been able to do what I've been able to do. And as a kid from a little town in Oregon, um, uh, with no background whatsoever, no family background in the business, uh, uh, and I think I think it's why people like Shooter, because Shooter was the story, uh, my story, but uh, which is the story of a, a, a person coming out of nowhere from Roseburg, Oregon, in into the Kremlin and the White House and and uh, all these different places that all, you only dream about, and having a camera and recording it as along the way. I mean, uh, who could ask for more than that? You must look back at Vietnam, though, and then more recently your tour to Afghanistan and see the total futility in these conflicts. Well, I mean, I think I gave a talk one time about the futility of war in general. I mean, it's not, um, I would never brand myself in a political way like anti-war or pacifist or any of that. Uh, but anybody who's been in, in those kind of conflicts, and I look at great photographers like Jim Noctway, who really is a, uh, a crusader in his own way uh, and continues to do it, to his credit, um, that none of us, and I think you would find soldiers the same way, <laughs> quite frankly, uh, that no, how, how could you like a war? I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's one of the worst things you can go through, except for maybe an earthquake like what's just happened in Haiti. Uh, but the end result is the same. A lot of people end up being killed and injured for <clears throat> no godly reason that we could really justify. And... Uh, uh, and I know the political arguments on both sides for all this, but quite frankly, as a photographer, in my case, um, I let the pictures do the talking. You know, I'm, I don't come back, and uh, I just I, I feel that that I, I in the old-fashioned way of trying to be objective about everything, uh, and it doesn't mean I'm condoning violence or wars, uh, but I think the photos speak for themselves, and, and they do not paint a pretty picture of, of war. You mentioned that you don't like to really be labeled as a, a photojournalist. Um, Correct. So are there ethical um, guidelines there that you don't like to cross? I mean, are you completely impartial uh, in these combat situations? Well, I don't think... Just being a member of the human race makes me a partial person. <laughs> being objective is really kind of a, it's kind of a, it's, it's something nice to aspire to, but I don't know how you do it because we all see things a different way. I mean, I, I see one thing and somebody else sees the same exact thing and they have an exactly opposite reaction to it. Um, but at least in the training, uh, and, and, there's been a lot of talk lately about citizen journalists. You know, Morley Safer said, I feel the same way about 
citizen journalists as I do about citizen surgeons. You know, there there is a an it's a profession that we have been brought up to 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 try to see both sides and try to repair re, report and photograph fairly. Um, I mean, I, I just uh, that that's always been an ongoing uh, goal for me is is not just taking a side or twisting it around in one way or another, but being a, a human being, uh, you know, we are just by nature subjective. It's just some are less so than others. I would hope. It's been a, a long career for you, David, and we have been. Um given a great privilege to follow that with you today. I thank you so much for being here and sharing that with us. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can get information on this or any other program in the series at the official website, davidgibbons.org, and there is also a blog where you can leave comments for feedback. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, And good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management